many of us have different kinds of symbols that we look to in life that, that may be small things, small tokens that represent greater realities. Uh, uh, I, I wear a, redi- a wedding ring, and, and my wife is glad that I do. And uh, on its own, it's not much. It's a, a size 10 ring made out of uh, tungsten. It's a little bit heavier than most other rings and uh, kind of a, a dark gray material. On its own, this ring means nothing. But when given to me by my wife and accompanied with various vows and promises made in the presence of God and others at our wedding, uh, this ring took on a whole other significance, much deeper significance. And so this ring on its own means nothing, but, but placed on my finger, it, it reminds me of all of the promises that my wife and I made to each other. Uh, of the marriage that we have, of the, the covenant that we entered into as a husband and a wife before God, and that by his help we would picture the gospel in our relationship with one another and in our family. There are lots of other little things I'm sure that you can look at in, in your own life, small tokens that on their own may not, may not mean anything, may not look much, but for you and because of the experience that you have surrounding that token or, or maybe the events of life that, that, that were taking place at the time you received that, that token, that ring, that necklace, that uh, uh, maybe trinket on your dresser symbolizes something much greater, a greater reality. And so it is when we come to Genesis chapter 23, we see the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife. At first glance, if we don't press into the text very much, we may see just a, a, another text about a woman who dies and a husband who buys her a burial plot. When Sarah dies, Abraham will go to lengths to purchase a cave and a field as a burial plot for her in this chapter. That's just kind of on the surface, though. There, there, there are much deeper meanings to what is going on here. This, this purchase of a burial plot for his wife and, and ultimately for him and his, his family moving for, forward will serve as a, a stake in the ground of the land of Canaan for Abraham's descendants' future possession of it. In this text, we continue to see, as we have seen, week after week after week in the life of Abraham, that God is working his promises to fulfillment and to completion, just as he said. As, prom- as God's promises begin to bear fruit in the Old Testament, e- even here in, in the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, these promises and the fruit of these promises point us to their ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant, their ultimate fulfillment in the spiritual realities that we have taken hold of in Jesus. As we look at Genesis 23 this morning and the death of Sarah, I would hope that we would find encouragement in our hope for God's final consummation of all things as we see his timely fulfillment of, prom- of his promises to Abraham. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Genesis chapter 23, the entire chapter reads thus. Sarah, Abraham's wife, lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, the people that lived in the land nearby him, said, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. 
Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me uh, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the, city, at, the, at the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named uh, in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Small symbols, small tokens that on their own mean very little when tied to a particular event or promises made or promises that are being fulfilled take on a whole other meaning. And we see two small tokens, small things in this text that this morning remind us of far greater realities. The first is this in just the first two verses of Genesis 23. The sadness of death reminds us of the hope of eternal life. The sadness of death reminds us of the hope of eternal life. The first verses of this passage in Genesis 23 bear sad news for we who have been following Abraham's life to this point. The woman who was Abraham's half-sister and wife, whom he took from her homeland when God had called him, whom he lied about twice, who had, na- who had her name changed from Sarai to Sarah, who had bore him his son promised by God, Isaac. This woman, Sarah, has died. At 127 years old, she has died. Though she lived an extraordinary life, even by uh, today's standards, it seems that 127 years still seems too short. She died in the land of Kiriath Arba, later known as Hebron, in the land of Canaan, where Abraham was sojourning, the land that God had promised that he and his descendants would possess. Though Abraham in his life and his marriage with Sarah did lie about her twice, once to Pharaoh and once to uh, the king Abimelech, in a way that led to her capture by these two foreign kings. And though Abraham was greatly displeased with Sarah when she sent away his first son Ishmael and his mother Hagar when Isaac was born, and though Abraham himself took her son, her only son, the son that they loved, Isaac, took him away up a mountainside, presumably to sacrifice him to God, this Abraham who at many turns, we, we would question whether he really does love his wife, Shows at her death that he really does. Text says, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
It's almost a passing statement for, for we here in the West who, who uh, might would want to dwell on, on that grieving a little bit more. But, but it says much about Abraham's love, his care for his wife. The very succinct description of his mourning reveals an inverse amount of his grief. There's only a little bit of explanation of his grieving, but that little bit of explanation shows a, a great depth to his mourning. He mourns and weeps and then goes to great lengths to acquire an honorable place to bury her. From the moment of the first sin in the Garden of Eden, death entered the world. It was the wages of sin that God had warned our first parents, Adam and Eve, of. Death has had, friends, a marvelously high success rate in human history. It is a reality that every human being ever to live has had to face and to deal with. Death is sad, not only because it creates a void in our lives where loved ones once stood and laughed and cried and held us, but because death reminds us of our sin and the wages that we have earned by it. In and of itself, death and the prospect of dying can be horrifyingly depressing, starting to feel like a funeral sermon this morning. But taken from the perspective of Christ and the promise of God, even the sadness of death has a glimmer of hope. We know that the wages of sin is death, yes. But as Romans 6.23 goes on, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the promise of the gospel, friends, that, that though your rebellion against God has precipitated, has brought about your mortality, your, your sure death, that death does not have the final word in your life. Amen. We are preparing to celebrate in just a few short weeks, Easter, that glorious day when Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who died as a substitute for our sins, was raised in power three days later. The hope of the gospel is that by trusting in Christ, by giving your life over to Him as Lord, repenting of your sin, that though these bodies of flesh will one day die, they will be raised by the power of the Spirit of God to live everlasting in the presence of Jesus, our risen Lord. Death is sad, but it reminds us of the hope of eternal life we have in Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 50 through 57. You have these verses printed in your worship guide for handy reference. Paul says this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a, a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and here he quotes, from Hosea, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Death is sad. But the sadness of death points us as Christians to the hope of the resurrection of Jesus and his victory over sin and death, a victory that he gives to us by faith in him and a resurrection that he will raise us with on the last day. Paul writes again to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Those Thessalonians who uh, in their day were grieving deeply over brothers and sisters in faith, over fellow Christians who had died uh, without Christ having yet returned. Paul says to them this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not, who, who, excuse me, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Brothers and sisters, don't be sad when your fellow Christians die. You can grieve, you can mourn, it is, it is, it is right to, but don't, don't become depressed in your grief or in your mourning. Grieve with hope, mourn with hope. Not, not, not hope for something that might happen, but with confident expectation of what God said he will do. Though Abraham grieves at the passing of his wife, Sarah, his grief should point us to the consolation of the hope that we have, the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Dear friend, if you do not know Jesus this way, if you have not experienced or received the hope of life eternal in the presence of your creator, by giving your life to Jesus, by turning from your sin and trusting in him who died in your place and was raised again, I, I entreat you, trust Christ today. Yeah. Trust him today. Enter into the promise of eternal life today. Death is sad, but it reminds us of the hope we have of eternal life. And then in the last verses of this chapter, verses 3 through 20, we find that that second token, that second reminder of something greater. And that is that a final resting place for Sarah points to our eternal home. A final resting place points to our eternal home. The remainder of our chapter this morning is focused upon Abraham's efforts to obtain an honorable burial plot for his wife. And the negotiations that take place there between he and the elders uh, among the Hittites and among Ephron, son of Zohar, are rather interesting. This is a, a really interesting uh, passage for learning about ancient Near Eastern negotiations. Now, from one perspective, the agreement that they come to seems rather odd. Because to our Western American eyes, we see Abraham asking to buy a burial plot, being offered it for free, and then he counters with an offer to pay full price. And then doling out 400 shekels of silver for something that apparently he could have had at no charge. Now, you, friend, would not be alone in asking yourself if Abraham is crazy. This is not how you negotiate a, a price for a used car at the used car lot. You don't go in saying, hey, I'd like to purchase this car. And the dealer certainly does not come back and say, well, go ahead and take it. You can have it, you know, free of charge. And, and if that were the case, you certainly would not answer. No, 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 no. I want to play. I want to pay blue book value plus plus some. I want to give you everything you are owed for this car. What Abraham seems to be doing is, is, is just crazy to our, our Western American perspective and ideas of negotiations. But we need to read Genesis 23 from the understanding of Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern negotiations and not from our experience of buying a used car. So here's what happens in this series of events. First, Sarah dies, Abraham uh, grieves for her, and then he goes to the Hittite elders, uh, the, the elders uh, of the people that live in the area where he's, you know, uh, living as a sojourner, to ask them for property to uh, bury his wife. This much is normal. He's just making a request for a burial plot. And the elders respond by offering the choices of their plots and caves uh, uh, to him for free. Now, 
though they are saying, go and take the, take whatever, you know, burial plot you want. Uh, we give it to you. We, we give it to you. Go do that. This may not necessarily be an open offer to take the land free of charge, but, but an acceptance of his request to negotiate for land. Okay. Abraham approaches them again a second time. And now he asks for a very specific plot. They say, take the choicest one. He goes, well, actually I have one in mind. It's a cave at the edge of a man named Ephraim's property. Abraham's request is, is noble because he's seeking a plot of land at the edge of another man's property so that Ephron's larger land holdings remain whole. Uh, Abraham is not going to go to this guy Ephron and, and just take a donut hole right out of the middle of his allotment, right? He's, he just wants a, a slice off the edge of it. He's, a, he's, a, he's dealing in a, in a noble fashion. Now Ephron, who is apparently in the company of the elders there, says rather generously to Abraham, he says, no, no, my Lord, I give it to you. Go, go bury your dead. I give it to you. It's yours. But we know that in the Near East, both in ancient days as, as even now, generosity and hospitality are of the highest value. If someone came to your house, uh, even if it was a stranger or a, or a foreigner in the land and, and needed a place to stay, it would have been incredibly insulting for you as an ancient Near Eastern person to turn them away. Hospitality is a, was a, a major uh, virtue in that culture, and it remains so even, even today. Even in negotiations like this, the seller would want to appear exceedingly generous. So Ephron, even though he may not in, intend to really sell the land for free, is showing, hey, I, I'm willing to be generous. Just go take it, bury your debt. So Ephron's initial offer is not, not really an offer to take the land free of charge. It could be one of two things, though. Either one, Ephron is giving an offer to allow Abraham to use the land with an obligation to remit use back to its owner at a later date. So Ephron is saying, I give you the land, go bury your dead. And sort of parenthetically, he's saying, but later on down the road, I may require to take the land back from you. So I'll give it to you to use as long as I'm comfortable with you using it. Or Ephron could mean, and, and this is what I think he's getting at, that, that he's offering the land free of charge as a way of testing Abraham's starting negotiation point. I'll offer it for free. He knows I don't really mean it for free, but, but that will elicit his counteroffer, and, and then we'll have a starting place for negotiations. If he lowballs me, I'll just, you know, discount the, the offer altogether and, and negotiations will be done. If he comes in at a price maybe close to where I want to be, we'll work from there. So Ephraim says, no, no, my Lord, take it for free. And Abraham counters with, with just the, the, the wildest of, of counteroffers. He counters the offer of free with a payment of full price. Abraham says, whatever you want for it, I'll give it to you for that. Or I'll take it for that price. Here again, we find that Abraham is not looking to get a good deal. Neither is he trying to hide his intentions. Abraham wants a piece of land that will belong to him outright. And he is willing to pay fair price for it. He's not seeking to, to enter into any sort of relationship that would bring other obligations upon him by the landowner. And also, he, he wants to, to, to just, I think, to be done with this transaction. I want the land. I'll pay you what you, what you want for it. And so Ephron, son of Zohar, responds with a continued show of generosity and relational equity. He says, and, and here we have to kind of read into what he's saying a little bit more. He says, oh, Abraham, we're good friends by now, aren't we? Why should a price of uh, 400 shekels 
keep us apart? What, what's, a land, what's a piece of land worth 400 shekels between you and me? You know, why, why should the price of, of, a, of a piece of a plot of my land, why should that keep us from being friends? That sounds kind of fishy, Ephraim's statement, because it sort of is. Ephraim appears to be playing up his and Abraham's new relationship, their new friendship, partnership, as a means of getting paid what is likely a fairly hefty price. 400 shekels is not something to, to, to just laugh at. It's not, it's not you know, pocket change. This is a, this is a, 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 a large price that, that Abraham would have had to consider in paying for. Ephraim is self-serving in this scene. He wants to show that, that his and Abraham's relationship is of such a kind that he can appear to be generous while also getting everything that he wants. Ephron is a self-serving man. He's also a shrewd man. He uses the cultural norms of his day to disguise his self-serving nature. But unlike Ephron, Abraham is straightforward the whole way through. I'd like a plot of land to bury my wife. Okay, take a choice plot. Well, no, I'd like this one. Thank you very much. Okay, well, go and take it. Well, no, I want to pay full price for the thing. Oh, you know, we're such good buddies. Abraham, 400 shekels between you. Well, what's that? What, you know, what's, what's ten dollars or $15,000 between us? Right, Danny? No big deal. <laughs> Abraham shows that he's straightforward the whole way through. He's a noble. He's an honorable man. He says what he means. He means what he says. And he immediately pays the full cost of 400 shekels and acquires the land fully and legally in the sight of all the Hittite elders so that they might know for generations to come that that land is his. And he goes and he buries his wife, Sarah, there. What is most significant about this whole scene is this, that Abraham now actually owns property in the land that was promised to him by God. This is huge. It is his. This small, even though it's a small field and a, and a cave for a burial plot, it belongs to Abraham. He owned no land in all of Canaan, the land of prom, promise, up to this point. But now he owns this plot of land and no one can take it away. It is small and it will be all the land that Abraham himself owns, even when he dies in just a few chapters. But it is his. He will be buried in the same cave and so will his son, so will his grandson, and so will his grandson's wife. It is a small and seemingly insignificant token, insignificant symbol, an insignificant event in the life of Abraham. But in the context of the promises that God has given to him, it means so much. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Does that sound like any human city, any earthly city? The writer of Hebrews continues in verse 13 of chapter 11, uh, after having talked about Sarah's faith and others, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
Abraham is seeking a homeland, a place of, of, of rest and, 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 and a place to dwell with all of his descendants. In verse 15 of Hebrews 11, the author continues, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, the land of Haran, a, a human country, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, what the writer of Hebrews reveals to us is that even though Abraham has only this little plot of land to his name at the end of his life, to him it is just a small foretaste of the heavenly home that is built by God. A city with God for its builder, uh, with Christ for its foundation, a city that is awaiting him one day. Friends, Christian, that same city is awaiting you too. John sees this city in his revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, or chapter 21, verse, excuse me, verses 1 through 27. John relates this in his vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He continues in verse 22 of the same chapter. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, a show of eternal security. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean, no sinful thing will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This city, Christian, is waiting for you. Know this, friend, your desire for a home in this life, your, your longing for a place to lay your head in rest, the, the pull of your spirit toward a safe and secure dwelling will never be fulfilled perfectly in this life. Even if your mortgage is paid, you still have a list of repairs to make. But fear not. Do not despair, do not be depressed, do not be saddened by this, for God has prepared a place for all who love Him and have been saved by His grace through faith in His promised Son, Jesus. And God will bring all who trust in Christ to live forever in His own presence in the new Jerusalem. Our heavenly existence will not be, friends, as disembodied spirits floating about in ethereal cosmic clouds, strumming harps with wings on our backs, singing songs we've never sung before. That is not a picture of the real heaven. Our heavenly existence will be in bodies raised from the dead, glorified as Christ's was on his resurrection, bodies untainted by sin and sustained by the very spirit of God and our worship of Jesus. That is a way better picture of heaven than the one that that we have in movies and in cartoons today. Abraham greeted these things, this heavenly dwelling, the city prepared by God. He greeted these things by faith from afar in the faith-filled purchase of a burial plot. 
But we have embraced these realities. We have embraced these truths by faith in the miraculous birth, the sinless life and substitutionary death and glorious raising of Jesus Christ. We don't have to greet those things from afar. We can look forward to them with confident expectation, knowing that in Christ, because of his death and resurrection, in our place, that all we who have had our name written in the Lamb's book of life, who have trusted Jesus as Lord with our whole lives, that we can look forward to living for eternity in that city where God's dwelling place will be with man. Oh, what a vision. Oh, what a home. Small things in the life of Abraham, all through his life, often stand as signals and as signposts to future and greater realities. What Abraham looked forward to in faith, we have received by the same faith. And while Abraham acted in obedience in ways that pointed forward in time to the fulfillment of God's promises, we partake of practices that are intended to point us backward to the promises that God has already fulfilled in Christ and practices that point us forward to what is yet to still be completed. This morning, we share in the privilege as the body of Christ in in sharing the Lord's Supper. Small meal that we take together as the church is itself a reminder to all who have trusted in Christ that the promise of salvation from sin has been made whole in Jesus. It's been fulfilled. And that our hope, our confident expectation of eternal life in Christ is secure as we wait His second coming. The small meal we take together this ordinance, this command of Jesus, for those who have submitted their lives to Him as Lord, we take together as Christians, reasserting our commitment both to Jesus as Lord and to one another as the body of Christ.